This is Stacy Harbaugh here with Nate Wiggyhout with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Republicans in the state's budget writing committee say they plan to cut the University of Wisconsin system's budget by over $30 million. Those cuts represent the system's funding from diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, otherwise known as DEI programs. They plan on redirecting the money into areas of workforce development. Under the plan, the UW system would need to eliminate over 180 positions related to DEI, which Republican Representative Alex Dahlman of Green Lake says it serves, quote, no practical purposes. System President Jay Rothman denounced the proposal, calling the cuts a significant setback to the state's efforts to recruit talent. The system had originally requested a budget increase of around $435 million. Governor Evers has said he would veto the budget if it included these cuts. Also in the Joint Finance Committee today, Republicans have announced their plan to cut taxes by over $4 billion. The plan is not a flat tax, as was previously recommended by top Republicans, but it would cut all income taxes for all earners. Those with the highest income would see the biggest cuts. Democratic Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard criticized the move, calling it, quote, outdated trickle-down economics, end quote. The average taxpayer is expected to see a $573 decrease in their state income taxes, retroactively kicking in at the beginning of the year. The JFC also announced a 4% raise for all state employees starting in July, with an additional 2% raise next year. Governor Tony Evers signed five bipartisan bills today to help address affordable housing concerns. The package includes several new loan funding programs and new procedures for reviewing land use around residential developments. The new bills grant authority to the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, or WIDA, to oversee the new loans that are intended to cover the cost of asbestos removal, floor repairs, and other renovations. And county officials shut down the main street of the town of Belleville today due to a gas leak. WKOW reports that the closure began just before 9.30 this morning. Officials shut down all of Main Street for around two hours before shutting off the gas leak and reopening all buildings in the area. The crisis management director for the Verona School District will not lose his job for striking a student during an altercation. School board members voted Wednesday not to fire Corey Saffold after a tense seven-hour hearing, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. Saffold has been on unpaid leave since June 1st, and he has been charged with one felony count of child abuse to intentionally cause harm. Saffold said he took threats of violence from the six-foot-four-inch student seriously and that he removed his glasses out of concern that the student would punch him. Security video unveiled at the meeting showed showed Saffold hitting the 17-year-old student with his elbow. Saffold also said he worried that the student would go after the concealed gun Saffold was carrying. And two new bison have arrived at the Henry Vilas Zoo to replace the aged animals that died last year, reports NBC15. 
The two new imports from Kansas have already bonded with Wilma, the zoo's surviving female bison, zoo officials said. The newcomers have not yet been named. The zoo plans to place a sculptural tribute to the departed male bison named Beefcake, and in a landscape, it plans as a representation of the Tallgrass Prairie environment. The statue of Beefcake will be made of 200 recycled tires. <laughs> and now on to today's top stories. Wisconsin is overhauling how it allocates state funds to local governments for their operating expenses. The bipartisan deal is meant to help both large and small cities deal with budget challenges. Local leaders say the extra aid helps, but there's a lot more to the obstacles they're addressing in trying to prop up their communities. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. For many years, Wisconsin towns and cities have been asked to do more with less. But updates to the state's shared revenue plan means additional funding is on the way as municipalities juggle multiple priorities. This week, Governor Tony Evers signed a bipartisan budget agreement that includes what his office says is a 20% increase in state financial support to cities of all sizes. Menominee Mayor Randy Kanak says the aid will help. While his city of 16,000 has been able to keep a balanced budget in recent years, he says the costs are piling up, including health care plans for city staff. And that's not all. Our streets and our roads really got beat up this last winter, so we're trying to fill potholes and maintain our streets. And then, of course, having a university here, you know, having to have extra fire protection with the additional cost of ambulances and so forth. Next says each town is unique in its needs, noting there's greater concern about how rural towns are faring, along with a dire fiscal situation in larger cities like Milwaukee. While the agreement is bipartisan, it has been criticized on both sides for adding provisions beyond the local government funding. Connect says cities like Menominee don't always have a stronger voice at the Capitol. He feels there's a need to recognize the detailed efforts to stay economically viable, which can help the rest of the state. What we have been fortunate to do is we were able to capitalize on our industrial and tech parks and other parts of the community where we were able to capitalize 100% of the taxation funds to build the infrastructure for more business coming in, which feeds into the system. Still, he says the rising costs can't be ignored. Kanak says even though the extra aid will reduce some of the budget headaches, municipalities will likely have to keep balancing their needs to keep taxes from rising too much while trying to provide services for residents. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. This Saturday, June 24th, marks the one-year anniversary of the United States Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson. It overturned federal protections of reproductive rights, and many states reverted back to laws that effectively banned abortion. The one on the books here in Wisconsin was enacted in 1849. WORT reporter Faye Parks has the story. Today, Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway and WISDEM's Chair Ben Wickler hosted a press conference to highlight these efforts and support the re-election campaign of numerous Democratic politicians. On the steps of the state capitol building and alongside representatives from Planned Parenthood, they outlined the continuing effects of an abortion ban on people's daily lives. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says, What we see now is that government is trying to dictate private health care decisions, which should scare all of us. 
I mean, let's be real. I'm a postmenopausal lesbian. Me getting pregnant would take a miracle. But I am scared because of these decisions and because of this legislation that has been introduced across the country to take away the right to choose. Because I know that MAGA Republicans will not stop with abortion care. If it is okay for the government to dictate private health care choices, who knows where they will stop. Ben Wickler discussed the importance of the 2024 election to protect reproductive rights, hitting home a favorite rallying point for Democrats in which they use the issue of reproductive rights to increase funding and voter turnout. He points to the Women's Health Protection Act, which would prevent governments from regulating abortions before viability. A previous version has been approved by the United States House, but has failed in the Senate. What happens in 2024 will hinge on Wisconsin, and it will hinge not just in the presidential race on Wisconsin, but also in the fight for the Senate majority. Because the question of whether the United States Senate will pass the Women's Health Protection Act to right the, the protections from Roe versus Wade, the protections for reproductive freedom into law, will depend on what might be yet again a one-seat majority in the U.S. Senate. And the senator most critical to that majority is Senator Tammy Baldwin. The Women's Health Protection Act is one of numerous bills in Congress seeking to right abortion and contraception access into federal law. Other related federal bills to protect the right to travel out of state for an abortion, ensure legal safeguards for providers, and protect private medical information have also been proposed but not passed. On the state level, a lawsuit from Attorney General Josh Call to nullify Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban continues to sit in Dane County Court one year after being filed. It's expected to eventually wind up before the state Supreme Court, which will flip to a liberal majority in August. That's as Wisconsin lawmakers grapple with how to adopt a vague 174-year-old law to today's medicine, and what rights are still protected after the fall of Roe. On Wednesday, a bipartisan bill to allow pharmacists to prescribe birth control passed the Republican-held state assembly. It moves next to the state Senate, though it's faced heavy fire from some Republicans Governor Evers has promised to sign the bill into law if it reaches his desk. Meanwhile, Representative Lisa Subek of Madison, featured later in our show, and Senator Diane Hesselbein of Middleton are spearheading an attempt to protect contraception access in Wisconsin. If passed, it would establish the patient's right to access and the health care provider's right to dispense information and contraception. It would also block any attempts to implement laws that infringe on these rights in future. In the last year, Pro-choice advocates and organizations have already carried out efforts to provide safe abortions to Wisconsin residents in spite of the ban. While this care cannot be carried out legally within Wisconsin's borders, it is still protected in Illinois and Minnesota. Organizations have continued to help people in Wisconsin get abortions in other states. Johanna Hatch is the board president of Powers, a nonprofit composed of doctors, midwives, doulas, and activists dedicated to helping pregnant people. Our motto is trust pregnant people, so we are going to follow the lead of the folks who seek our services. Hatch says that Powers does not infringe on the ban by advising pregnant folks, but much of their work is now focused on the logistics and cost of travel. As a result, she says the greatest impact of the Dobbs decision has fallen on patients and clinics. The people that we serve and the people who are calling us are absolutely facing obstacles in having to, first of all, travel out of state for this care, 
Secondly, clinics in a lot of our neighboring states have had to absorb folks coming from Wisconsin as well as other states with restrictions. So there are much longer wait times for, at some clinics for care that folks need. Um, so there's a lot of stress on a lot of clinics in the neighboring states as well. Um, and then there's the financial realities of having to travel out of state. Following Dobbs, Planned Parenthood Illinois sought to prepare for an influx of out-of-state patients by opening more clinics in border cities, such as Waukegan. The organization reported a 54% increase in patients last year, many traveling from Wisconsin. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson was handed down on June 24, 2022. This Saturday is the official one-year anniversary of the decision. Anti-choice group Pro-Life Wisconsin is planning to march against abortion outside the state capitol on Saturday afternoon from 1.30 to 3.30 p.m. Organizers describe the rally as the largest gathering of pro-lifers in Wisconsin. Local reproductive rights activist Lily Lux encouraged WORT listeners to also show up then in solidarity for reproductive rights. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Meanwhile, Democratic lawmakers introduced a bill yesterday to guarantee Wisconsinites access to contraception in all forms. The bill would shield the right to contraception in case lawmakers try to create barriers to access down the line. WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with one of the bill's main authors earlier today. Yesterday, Democratic state lawmakers introduced what they called the Right to Contraception Act to protect access to contraceptives here in Wisconsin. The introduction of that bill comes on the heels of the one-year anniversary of the Dobbs decision, which is coming up this Saturday. To learn more about this bill, I'm joined now by Representative Lisa Subek of Madison, one of the main authors of the proposal. Uh, Representative Subek, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Now, Representative Subek, what is the Right to Contraception Act? Sure. So yesterday we introduced the Right to Contraception Act. It is a fairly simple bill that would guarantee individuals or it would establish a statutory right in our state laws for individuals to access contraception and contraceptive-related information. It would also create a corresponding right for healthcare providers to be able to prescribe contraceptives and contraceptive and provide contraception related information. Essentially what our bill does in probably the most easy to explain sense of the word is it would prohibit our state government or any of our local entities, cities, counties, villages, from passing laws that single out contraception or single out providers that provide contraception and limit access to that contraception. So it's, um, you know, in many ways it creates a right that sets forth an expectation um, for future laws and would prevent future laws or rules that would interfere with our right to access contraception. And now why did you introduce this piece of legislation? Why, why is this important? This is incredibly important. I mean, first off, I think it's important to say that contraception is a safe medication. Use of contraception and access to, contra- to all forms of contraception is actually supported by 90% of Americans, so it is a wildly popular proposition. That said, it is incredibly important that individuals have access to contraception. It is our opportunity to be able to plan our families, to be able to plan our futures, to be able to space pregnancies, and to participate in economic and social life. And right now, that right to access contraception is is at risk. 
I think that we saw as we're going this weekend into the anniversary of the Dobbs decision with which reversed Roe v. Wade, that there are rights that we have had for decades and that we believed were inalienable, weren't going to be changed. And I think that many people were caught off guard when the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade in its Dobbs decision. And perhaps even more startling was the dissenting opinion of Justice Clarence Thomas, who specifically named a couple of court decisions in his dissenting opinion that he thought should be revisited. One of those is actually the decision that granted that initially overturned it's the Griswold versus Connecticut and it overturned a Connecticut law that barred access to contraceptives for married couples. And in doing so, it prevented future laws in states um, and local localities that would limit access to contraception or bar access to contraception. When Justice Thomas named Griswold in his dissenting opinion and said that should be revisited, that means that a decision that was made over 65 years ago that clarified the right to safe access to legal, contra legal access to safe contraception could very well be overturned, and we know the conservatives have set their sights on that. And now I do want to talk about the, the sort of elephant in the room, which is the Republicans in the state legislature. Uh, now, they did introduce or they have introduced some legislation regarding contraception, including a bill uh, which was passed last night to allow pharmacists to prescribe birth control here in Wisconsin. Have you had any indication how Republicans feel about this bill or if they will sign on? Yeah, I'm not optimistic that they will sign on. That said, I did start to have some conversations yesterday during our floor session with Republicans and really, you know, try, try, to, try to get them to at least take a look at the bill and give it due consideration. Yesterday, the Assembly did pass a bipartisan bill that would allow pharmacists to prescribe contraception or a limited number of types of contraception. It's actually a fairly limited bill, but it still expands access. That said, the same bill has been passed by the Assembly before, and I think that for Republicans who have continued to conflate abortion and birth control, and many of whom have still spoken out against this law, this was far from a unanimous vote, there were a number of Republicans who voted against it in the Assembly, does not have the support to move forward in the Senate. And I talked to the bill's author in the Assembly yesterday and said to him, is this going to make it to the Senate this time? He's introduced this before and hasn't been able to get that traction there. And at this point, they still do not have enough Republicans willing to support it that they will bring it to a floor vote there. So, you know, I think that in some ways the Republicans are, you know, I, I want to be talking about both sides of their mouth, but I don't think that within their caucuses here in the legislature, they have enough support to get these things done. And at the same time, they actually have a push from some of their legislators to limit access to contraception. And this bill that we've proposed would, would, would prevent those future attacks from happening. Now, this piece of legislation that you've introduced mirrors another piece of legislation going through the federal government right now. Why introduce this into the state legislature when there is a federal bill that's been introduced there as well? Sure. So, you know, we have seen, in addition to 
attacks on the federal level to access on birth control, we have seen state level attacks as well. There have been court cases at the state level that have recognized the right to privacy and therefore the right to contraception in our state constitution as well. But, you know, just because they've introduced something on the federal level doesn't mean it's going to pass there. And so it certainly seems prudent that we mirror that here and that we look for every avenue we have. I mean, we have seen that an extremist right-wing activist court, um, in the case of the United States Supreme Court, will stop at nothing in reversing our rights. And therefore, we need to stop at nothing in protecting our rights. And now just before we go here, Representative Subek, do you have one, do you have just any final thoughts on this bill? And then two, what, what, what's sort of the timeline going forward? Sure. So just final thoughts on the bill. You know, this really is about our freedom to make our own personal decisions without interference from politicians. Um, for far too long, reproductive health care, whether we're talking about contraception or whether we're talking about abortion, have been a political football. But what's at stake is our freedom to make our own decisions, to plan our families and to plan our futures. And so that, to me, is at the core of why we need to pass this bill. Right now, the bill is circulating for co-sponsorship. Um, it will circulate for the next couple of weeks. At that point, it will be assigned a bill number and referred to a committee, and I am certainly hopeful and will be working to try to get the bill a hearing once, once that time has passed and it gets referred. I've been talking with Representative Lisa Subek of Madison about the Right to Contraception Act, which she helped to introduce yesterday. Representative Subek, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. Take care. It's 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for tuning in. In the coming weeks, the Madison Common Council will likely vote on a new police body camera program. The Capital Times reports that the pilot initiative will outfit 48 officers with body cams for one year. The program is the result of years of debate. Supporters argue that the new tech will increase police accountability and community oversight. And opponents contend the cameras are a violation of privacy and won't significantly change police behavior. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT contributor Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, take a look at the open records laws governing police body cameras and what footage you can and cannot obtain. And a quick reminder that this conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up on this beautiful yet still slightly hazy day? Hey, Jonah. Uh, I'm doing pretty good. It's not too hazy by me, but we got lake breezes to keep things a little clear, more clear, I guess. Yes, a little bit. It looks a little bit low resolution in Madison. Hopefully that'll clear up here soon and we'll get out from under these air quality advisory uh, issues. Hey, speaking of resolution, this is my terrible segue. Uh, today we're talking about videos. Specifically, we're taking a look at, uh, you know, 
body cameras, uh, you know, uh, uh, police dash cameras. And we wanted to talk about those and, you know, how you request those, what you can request. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right in here. Enough of my preamble. Tom, are videos records? Yes, videos are records, Jonah, because the definition of record in Wisconsin is very expansive. It is any material on which information is kept that's in the possession of a government entity or official. So it's literally anything that has information on it, if it's in government possession, does qualify as a record. So videotapes, they have information on them, the tape recordings, they have information. And in fact, the law expressly mentions some examples of records and includes in there recordings and tapes. Now, you mentioned body cams and uh, other police videos. There actually was a 2020 law couple years ago to specifically address those issues. It was never a question of whether they were records or not, but uh, police departments around the state and sheriff's departments as well had kind of come up with a hodgepodge of inconsistent ways to address this. So the legislature took a look and and issued some statewide rules for it. And, you know, importantly, it's not required for law enforcement agencies to use body cams or dash cams. Uh, most of them do now, but if, if they do use them, they do need to have a written policy about their use and their retention and under what circumstances they'll be redacted or made available. There's retention requirements in the law. It's a minimum of 120 days, but if there's uh, you know, a death or an injury uh, in the video, then it has to be kept through the end of the investigation or the end of the case, whatever underlying issue there is. And the law does create some specific exceptions for video depictions of minors, victims, private spaces like homes. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk a little bit about what other types of videos you might want to see. We talked about things like police dash cam videos, police body cam footage, but there's also like a few others like government meetings, for example. Yeah, all governmental bodies, of course, need to make their meetings open to the public. They are not required to record them themselves, but a lot of them do. So if they do, those videos are public records that you can get access to. If you take a video recording yourself, which you are allowed to do, that is not a governmental record. Uh, somebody can't force you to turn over your recording of a governmental meeting. I've also seen people make record requests for training videos, you know, especially in the advent of, of, of so much virtual and, and Zoom conferencing. And so I've seen people making recordings for training sessions or for Zoom meetings. You know, a, lot of, a lot of the times those aren't recorded, but they can be. And if they make a recording of it, you can access that. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this issue today is we have a little bit of a news hook. You know, after much debate in the coming weeks, the uh, Madison City Council will be voting on, you know, whether or not to implement a sort of limited police body cam program. This comes after a long, long series of debates. Um, according to the Cap Times, the pilot program will equip 48 officers in the uh, city's north district with body cameras for one year. But, you know, as I understand from following the coverage on this issue, Madison is actually sort of, you know, a unique situation here. A lot of other law enforcement agencies have adopted body cams. Yeah, they are way behind the curve on this. It's It's been kind of about a decade in coming, about 10 years ago, we started to see these much more frequently, maybe not even quite that far, but it's been a major shift in the last decade. You know, body cams, I think just people are realizing, do a lot of things you want to do with, with keeping police accountable. And also, fr frankly, they get used a lot as evidence in trials too. So it's a kind of works on all sides of the issues. You get the important thing is that you get a clear record of exactly what happened, and that has a lot of benefits. It's 
just more accurate to see a video than it is to rely on after the fact written down incident report from police officers. And, and frankly, there's some studies showing that, that, that the knowledge of taping of that you are being video recorded or that you are doing video recording can temper people's behavior and uh, on, on all sides of confrontations too. Yeah. So with that vote coming up, in case it does pass, I wanted to do this episode. We've done it once before in the past, a number of years ago, but I wanted to revisit this issue to talk about some of the problems people might have when requesting this information. So let's talk about some of the issues, you know, carve outs for privacy, carve outs for minors, what have you. So the statute that was written for body cams a couple of years back does exempt out videos that pick minors and uh, the victims of crimes in most circumstances. However, they do have an out in the statute. They, they return to the balancing test and say, although the presumption for these kind of things is that, that they shouldn't be released, they can be uh, released with a showing of enough need, of enough public interest in something. It, it's something that can be challenged in court, but it's also a decision that the police departments can make. So they have some discretion to say, okay, this... This does show the victim of a shooting, uh, but we are going to release it. And if they do that, uh, they can blur out faces and edit out identities. So that's good. There's there's also rules about uh, private spaces. So the, the legal language used is videos shouldn't be released if they show an area where a person has a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that's actually borrowed from Fourth Amendment law about searches and seizures and it's kind of the things you'd expect. You know, if the police are recording inside your home, that's a place you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. If they're out on the street somewhere, no, because anybody could see that. If they're inside a public-facing business, something that's open to people to just walk in off the street to shop or, or, or get services, that's not a place you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, if the police are in, say, the, the break room of a business or something, somewhere the public normally doesn't go, that might be a little different. And one of the things I'm curious about is storage. You know, how long do the police have to keep these videos? Is there any, like, particular element of the law that says, yeah, you got to keep these body cam videos for five, ten years? Or is it just sort of at the discretion of the individual department? So it's a minimum of 120 days, so four months there. And if there is a death or an injury depicted, it has to be kept longer than that. And longer meaning it has to be kept at least through the end of an investigation or a case that's brought. It reminds me that when this used to be a much bigger issue, that when uh, that when body cams were first coming out, a lot of custodians and just a lot of other people were saying, this stuff takes up a ton of space. And we literally have entire rooms full of old tapes and it's gonna it's, and it's an issue but like most things technology related the cost per gigabyte of data however you want however you want to measure it we're measuring in terabytes now it just constantly constantly drops so that what used to be an issue of boy paying for storage for this and finding physical locations for storage for this it's just not an issue anymore i mean you know, you got a micro SD chip that's the size of your pinky fingernail or even smaller. It can hold terabytes of information on them. It's, it's, that's less of a problem now. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks so much for talking with me this week. It's always a pleasure, Jonah. Remember, everybody, if you don't ask, you won't know. All right, rad. 
It's been a dry summer so far for Madison and Dane County. And while the weather has been bad for our lawns and gardens, what does this dryness mean for the fish? In this week's Fishy Business, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hasbro dive into what's happening around area waters. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, it's been a it's been a dry, I don't know, month and a half, two months now here in the Madison area. It's sort of the thing. I, at least I don't really notice until I sort of it just sort of hits one day. It sneaks up on you, and it's like, hey, it hasn't really rained in a little while. So, you know, what? obviously we know what that does for our lawns and our gardens and everything else, but uh, what is what does that do to the uh, fish bite when it hasn't rained in a long time? Well, it, it varies. It depends on where you're at. So if you're on rivers, a lot of the local rivers are way down right now. So the Wisconsin River is running much lower than it should be at this time of the year. A lot of your trout streams are running low and very clear. On, on, on those situations, um, you know, a lot of the times that low water will congregate fish in, in certain areas. So in a way, it makes them uh, easier to find. But in other ways, you know, with the water being low and clear, especially on the trout side of things, as I'm sure you know, it can be a little tougher to sneak up on those fish So because they can see so so well through the, through the water. Uh, the other thing is water temperatures are definitely come up a lot faster when there isn't as much water which totally makes sense so when there's not as much water in the river the water warms up faster so and on the trout side of things that can be a little problematic on the lake side of things it doesn't really affect things all that much although you know around town here when we had some especially in may we had uh, not much rain which if if we get rain it kind of tends to flush the system out a little bit and then we had uh, some warm spells through there that combination can uh, cause a lot of blue-green algae blooms, so uh, which which we saw a lot of in May. Those have kind of cleared up here in June, um, but um, yeah, we it, we just it's been so dry here that you know there there just isn't a lot of new water coming into the system, if you want to call it that, and can you know make things a little gross at times. But um, as far as the fishing goes on lakes, it doesn't tend to affect them all that much at least for now. I mean, the lakes are definitely down from where they should be at this time of year, but the fish still have plenty of places they can go. And you mentioned the blue-green algae there. Now, obviously, we know that that blue-green algae is bad for us and our pets and stuff. Does that do anything to the fish? Uh, no, and as far as I know, I guess I'm, I'm certainly not a fish biologist by any means, but as far as I know, the fish uh, tolerate it just fine. I think you know, in certain areas, if you were, say, in like a, a small shallow pond, it can cause issues with oxygen levels in the water. But as far as the big lakes around Madison, it, it, it basically just makes things gross and a little less pleasant to actually be out there fishing on. Well, let's move into now uh, what's going on in all of the lakes in Madison. So just sort of broadly, what's been uh, what's been happening in the Madison area? Well, uh, the bluegills uh, have sort of been the big news. I think last time we talked uh, that uh, a lot of the bluegills were moving up onto beds in different lakes. Uh, Now that spawn is winding down, I guess we'll say. So uh, the lower lakes in the chain, Kiganza and Wabisa, the bluegills are off beds. They're moving out a little bit deeper now, but they are also very hungry after sitting on their nests and guarding the eggs. So they're 
definitely very hungry. I'd look for those fish in about 10 feet of water, sometimes out to 15 and sometimes shallower than that. But if I was out, I'd start in about 10 feet of water. As you move up the chain, uh, Monona gills are just finishing up spawning. So they're also going to be very hungry and moving out a little bit deeper. And on Mendota, they're currently still sitting on beds. And they'll probably be out there another week or so and then they'll start moving off their beds. And then, then we just sort of get into kind of the plateau of summer fishing where it's just fish are generally in, in pretty predictable areas. But um, for now, um, we got gills that are on beds or moving off beds, and all the other fish are, are basically in their summer patterns. So we have uh, bass that are largemouth bass are up shallow, smallmouth bass and walleyes are starting to move out a little bit deeper as the water warms up and then they're also starting to move out onto mid-lake humps where they'll hang out for basically the rest of the summer until things cool down in the fall then they'll move in shallow again. Now let's get into a couple uh, specific lakes here. Let's start off with Mendota. Anything happening there? Well uh, Mendota like I said the bluegills are up on beds so that's uh, been a popular thing. The perch bite uh, which Mendota is renowned for it hasn't really started yet, but we need the weed lines to come up just a little bit more, and that'll concentrate those perch on the weed edges. But that, that should be a pretty fantastic bite. Usually that gets going about the 4th of July around here. Walleyes and smallmouth are on mid-lake humps. Tons of pike out there right now, so uh, and, and they're being found all over the lake, shallow, even a little deeper. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great time to be out fishing, that's for sure. Now, what about Lake Monona? Now, I know that there was a uh, muskie fishing tournament not too long ago. I know they caught some real nice ones out of there, but what's been happening in uh, Lake Monona? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the muskie bite is, of course, it's a it's a world-class muskie lake. People travel from all over the country to fish some of the large muskies we have on Lake Monona, so that's always a thing out there. I would say, from the reports I get anyway, I haven't, I wouldn't say that it's in full swing just yet, but um, they, they are getting some, some nice muskies out there. As far as other species go, they're getting a lot of bluegills shallow that are, like I mentioned, are coming off their beds. Um, but uh, the Monona Terrace Wall has been a productive spot for bluegills during the day. That's also a great spot for crappies during low light hours, so early mornings and, you know, as we move into uh, sundown, we get uh, some good crappies that move in there. Uh, Monona Bay down there, Birmingham Park area is also a great place to target some bluegills. The bass action is, is about the same as Mendota. The fish are starting to move out a little deeper. And yeah, also a lot of pike down on Monona too. All right. And I think we got time for one more quick one. Let's just do Wabisa real quick. What's happening there? Well, you know, Wabisa and Monona are very similar lakes. They both hold muskies. They both have good populations of walleye. I'd say maybe just a little more walleye down on Wabisa. A lot of I've been hearing about some good fish coming out of the Babcock Park area, uh, the Hog Island area, which is near Lake Farm Park, has also been uh, productive. But um, same thing down there. Only the bluegills are off, definitely off their beds down there now. So those fish have moved out to ten feet of water. Like I said, is about where I'd be looking for those fish. Well, that will just about do it for today here, Pat. Summer fishing, uh, sounds like it's in full swing right there. Bring some water, uh, bring some sunscreen, you know, keep yourself safe out there, but it sounds like a great time to be out there. Uh, Remember, you can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want by calling 608-BIG-FISH. And uh, Pat, thank you so much for talking with me. Good luck out there. Thanks. You too, Nate. Always a pleasure.
forward Madison FC returned to winning ways in their most recent pair of games. First, shutting out league leaders North Carolina FC with a 3-0 win at Bree Stevens, and then tallying a 1-0 victory away to Richmond, Virginia for the first Henny Derby matchup of the 2023 season. Here's more from Forward Focus. Hello again to WORT listeners, both online and here at 89.9 FM on your radio dial, and welcome to another episode of Forward Focus, your bi-weekly segment on all things Forward Madison FC, Wisconsin's only fully professional soccer team. I'm one of your hosts, Grant Peters, assistant editor for soccer and culture-themed fanzine News Magazine. Joined, as always, by Director of Public Relations for Forward Madison FC, Evan Warwick, as well as New Dogma Editor and Forward Focus Producer, Andrew Schmidt. In this week's segment, an ambling Forward Madison had two huge matches, one on June 10th against league leaders North Carolina FC, and then the heralded Henny Derby match against the rival Richmond Kickers in historic, yet crumbling, City Stadium. For more on those matches, Evan Take it away. Where we last left you forward-focused listeners, Ford Madison was coming off a tough defeat on the road in Chattanooga. The Mingos were down in the bottom third of the USL League One table, needing a win to shift momentum back in their favor. That opportunity came on Saturday, June 10th at home against USL League One league leaders, North Carolina FC. Fans packed Bree Stevens Field for a night devoted to celebrating Father's Day. After a nervous opening couple of minutes, the Flamingos found their footing towards the end of the first half with a goal from Stephen Payne. Coming out of the halftime break, FMFC had one thing in mind. Dominate the match. Goals from Wolfgang Prentice and Jacob Krul powered the Flamingos to a massive 3-0 victory and three points to move their way up the standings. The Flamingos returned to the road after a win to play in the Henny Derby, a rivalry matchup against the Richmond Kickers, on June 17th. What's the Henny Derby, you may ask? The rivalry is based around a celebration of black soccer culture, with the winner of the matchup receiving the coveted Henny Derby trophy. The match was played evenly, with both clubs trading possession and chances of goal. The breakthrough for Ford Madison came in the second half off the foot of former Richmond Kicker player and birthday boy, Stephen Payne. FMFC was able to hold on to the 1-0 lead and get the Henny Derby victory to vault their way into fifth place in the USL League One table. Let's go to Andrew, who has post-match reactions from fans. We're joined again on Forward Focus by Flamingos fan Oleg, who shares his thoughts on the NCFC and Richmond Kickers games. Really good game. Not much to talk about, honestly, because I think the score speaks for itself. Not many mistakes that were made. I think overall the team played really well. And of course, there were some of the players who I think have won this spot for being recognized, I guess, in this game. The first one, it seemed like Gabhard was cutting in the middle a lot more than he was so far this season that have created a lot more space for pain 
to go on the wing and do his magic. And speaking about pain, amazing game, amazing goal. Um, I think after this game, he should change his name to Max. We had some new names as well who were on the score sheet that game. It's not just the same players who are doing the same thing. It seems more of the team achievement um, that those players were, were able to score and were able to bring us the victory. After a dominant display against league leaders North Carolina FC, the Flamingos traveled southeast to play the Richmond Kickers in this installment of the Henny Derby. While it ended a gritty win for a Madison team still finding its identity and its stride in a very busy part of the season, Oleg exercises a cautious optimism. A good game and a hard game at the same time. And I think the score 1-0 indicates it. Overall, I think our team is so far doing a really good job. Um, though it seems like our away games seem to have the same type of difficulties, which is the players are not supporting each other. Let's say one of our players is with the ball somewhere on the wing and he is getting pressured by the opposition. Our players are just standing still in their positions, not opening up and not creating the opportunity for the ball to move. I think this is something that needs to be addressed. If we work on that, I think we'll play even better. It was also a really good game for Timmy Mel. Again, his shirt was tucked out of his pants, and he did really nice tackles in the box. Um, did not concede a penalty, and overall was was really good at supporting our, our defense and just being there at the right times. Football fashion choices aside, Oleg calls out certain qualities we expect from specific players and what happens when they have an off night. And it was a difficult game for Macias and Bartman. It seemed like they were just not in it. It seems like they were either tired or at least at least Macias seemed like he was tired, like he was just not there, not in the game, showing the impact that, that he can make and that he usually makes throughout games. Bartman, it seems like, was just holding the ball way too much and had a hard time looking up and finding teammates. However, he did play really well in some situations on defense. He was able to bring the victory victory by dropping back and helping in defense as much as he can, uh, which was very impactful. We can't talk about Henny Darby difference makers without talking about the birthday boy Stephen Payne, who scored another peach of a goal and opted not to celebrate in front of the Richmond fans. Oleg shares some praise for the wingback. And yet another beautiful game for Payne. Again, I think he should change his first name to Max. Another game, another goal. Keep it up. You're doing a beautiful job. Ford Madison returns home to Breeze Stevens Field on Thursday, June 22nd to host Lexington Sporting Club. They then go on the road for a two-game stretch, playing away on Wednesday, June 28th to last year's champion South Georgia Tormenta FC and then to Greenville Triumph SC before returning home to Bree Stevens on Saturday, July 8th to host Central Valley Fuego FC. For Forward Focus, you're listening to 89.9 FM, WORT Madison. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. 
Your headline writer tonight was Peter Voller. Your script writer was, or script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter tonight was Faye Parks. And special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hasberg, Andrew Schmidt, Grant Peters, and Evan Warwick. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggyhout produced this newscast. And Ms. Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to the WORT Local News as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.